to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, there's a lot of news this week. It's a news-heavy day. It's a news-heavy life. It's a news-heavy world. Let's start with climate. What's been going on with the climate? Everything's fine, I'm sure? Uh, I'm always excited when we get to start with climate because it's always good news. The European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service confirmed on Tuesday Uh, As everybody had probably already figured out, that July was the hottest month on record by a fairly significant margin. Jake, insert applause. (laughs) Yeah, we did it, everybody. Congratulations to everybody. Uh, The average global temperature was uh, 16.95 degrees Celsius or 62.51 degrees Fahrenheit, which is uh, one third of a degree Celsius or six tenths of a degree Fahrenheit higher than the previous record holder, which was July 2019. Right now, 30 million people across the globe live in extreme heat. The estimate, one estimate is that by 2070, it's 2 billion. There's more good climate news if you're if you're interested. Uh, for example, Antarctic sea ice hit a record low apparently this past February, and it's not coming back anytime soon. More uh, jet the, skiing. Uh, there's a, a study in a journal called Frontiers in Environmental Science. One of the co-authors said, <clears throat> even under ideal conditions, it would take decades, if not centuries, for that ice to come back. So uh, more good news. Ocean surface temperatures uh, measured 69.71 degrees on average uh, that last Friday, uh, which edged out a March 2016 measurement to set another new record. So we're really we're setting records all over the place. Uh, that's 20.96 degrees Celsius, by the way. So, uh, yeah, everything's really good. Everything's looking great. Uh, it's warm. You can skip the hot tub and just dive in the ocean and, and get a nice, relaxing experience. It's uh, it's awesome. Good job, everybody. Uh, let's move on to Syria and the Islamic State's not doing so well, is it, Derek? Well, no, it's not really. There's a number of indications uh, to that effect. But uh, the group announced last week, last Thursday via Telegram, that its leader, the uh, pseudonymous Abul Hussein al-Husseini al-Qurayshi, had been killed earlier this year in a clash with uh, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, the jihadist group that controls northwestern Syria's Idlib province or most of it. Uh, it didn't say when this happened and may this may align with the uh, claim by, that the Turkish government made, uh, I believe back in April, that its intelligence operatives uh, had actually killed the leader of Islamic State. Hayat Tahrir al-Sham has denied any involvement in anything that would have cost uh, the erstwhile IS leader, his life. I suspect what probably happened is the Turks and HTS were working together and the Turks asked the fine folks at HTS not to take any credit because they don't want to admit that they're working with jihadists uh, in northern Syria, even though it's patently obvious that they are. Uh, if you're keeping score, uh, the new leader of Islamic State is supposedly a man whose a pseudonym is Abu Hafs al-Hashimi al Qureshi. Uh, at this point, I'm not even sure if these names refer to real people. Uh, it is, of course, not his real name. It's a nom de guerre uh, at best. 
Uh, I should also add there was a new report from the U.S. military inspector general uh, attached to Operation Inherent Resolve, which is the anti-Islamic state mission in Syria and Iraq that uh, painted a very dim view of the group's uh, uh, condition at this point, uh, which is corroborated really by by what the group has been doing in that former uh, caliphate or the former core of its uh, its dominion. It's been limited to very small opportunistic attacks, kind of hit and run attacks on Iraqi or Syrian security forces. It did not carry out its annual Ramadan offensive this year in Iraq, uh, which is uh, unheard of, uh, but suggests that it just doesn't have much juice left anymore. So uh, all, all in all, things are not looking great for the uh, the former caliphate. Let's talk about the agreement between the U.N. and Damascus about humanitarian corridors. Yes, uh, the Syrian government and the U.N. have now reached agreement after a couple of uh, couple of they, they reached a couple of agreements, a couple of separate agreements this week to reopen or keep open all three of the humanitarian relief corridors that are currently uh, extending from Turkey into northwestern Syria or northern Syria. The first agreement was an extension, really, of an of a deal the Syrian uh, Syrians had already cut with the U.N., to keep two aid points open to bring in earthquake relief. This is, you know, going back to uh, the massive earthquake that hit southwestern Turkey, northwestern Syria earlier this year. At that time, Damascus and the UN uh, came to an agreement on a couple of of aid corridors uh, that had formerly been used for just sort of general humanitarian purposes, but had been closed. They agreed to reopen them specifically for earthquake relief. So they've agreed to extend the the mandate of for those crossing points until at least November 13th. Uh, the second related agreement, uh, the UN and the Syrian government agreed to keep the Bab al-Hawa border point open. This had been the one remaining border checkpoint that was open between Turkey and Syria for UN humanitarian projects. The UN Security Council declined to renew its mandate last month. This was mostly a Russian initiative uh, they they vetoed a 9 month extension and uh, the council just refused the council members just refused to uh, to vote on the russian alternative which was a shorter extension so that crossing was in theory supposed to close it's now going to remain open for at least another 6 months but not under security council auspices this is a direct deal between uh, the syrian government and the un it is unclear whether the un agreed to any stipulations uh, that the syrian government laid out uh, Damascus did make a number of stipulations last month when this was all kind of just happening that the UN said it found unacceptable. And I'm not, I'm, I'm unclear whether the Syrian government dropped those demands or they compromised. The details are, are unknown. But good news, actually, I should, I should say, uh, as compared to everything else we've talked about so far. Derek, you know I love deals. So let's keep talking about deals. What are the status of the U.S. Saudi Israel talks? I guess I guess the uh, Islamic State guy getting waxed was probably good news, too. So uh, apologies for that. Yes. So uh, John Kirby, the spokesperson of the U.S. National Security Council, told reporters on Wednesday that the Biden administration is not close to concluding a deal that would normalize Israeli-Saudi relations. He had to do this because the Wall Street Journal reported earlier in the day that such a deal was very close to fruition, uh, that there was a general outline in place that included a U.S.-Saudi uh, NATO-like security pact, so one that would bind the U.S. to to come to Saudi Arabia's aid uh, in the event of you know a threat to Saudi national security, uh, and also uh, a deal under which the U.S. would provide assistance to Saudi Arabia's 
civilian, at least for the time being, nuclear program. That said, even the the Wall Street Journal piece made it clear that there are a number of significant details that still need to be worked out. The Saudis are supposedly demanding concessions around the Palestinian issue. I suspect that they will drop those demands when the time comes, but um, who knows? Uh, There is also apparently on the tables uh, a, a list of U.S. demands regarding Saudi Arabia's relationship with China in return for this binding security commitment. The Biden administration wants Saudi Arabia to scale back its relationships, both military and economic, with Beijing. Uh, I don't know specifically what they're asking for. It could be uh, a blanket agreement not to use Chinese military technology. It could be requiring the Saudis to commit to conducting oil sales in dollars rather than yuan. Uh, There may be another related bit that was mentioned in the the Wall Street Journal piece again, uh, that the uh, the Biden administration may be asking for increased oil production from the Saudis uh, as part of this process. So anyway, there's still a lot of moving parts at play uh, here, and any one of them could uh, theoretically sink the deal. There's a lot of news with Iran this week. Let's start with uh, <laughs> U.S. deployment to the Middle East, baby. We're back. <laughs> yeah, we're back. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to preface this with there's been a lot of there've been a lot of I think credible analysts of the Middle East who have been getting increasingly worried that something big was about to happen and something not great. Um, there is there have been there's been kind of back and forth incidents of violence in Lebanon, which doesn't have a really a functional government right now. And uh, Lebanon has a history of uh, that's not uh, great in terms of small acts of violence escalating into bigger acts of violence when there's no uh, real central authority. Uh, And, uh, you know, we've we've covered at length on this show the the uh, situation in Israel-Palestine. So there's, there's been uh, several things going on. One of the big ones has been uh, an, an increase in recent weeks in tension between the U.S. and Iran. And this is maybe built into the Saudi negotiations because, of course, the whole rationale or one part of the rationale for normalizing Israeli-Saudi relations is to build a, a sort of anti-Iran defense block in the region. Iran has been seizing or interfering with tankers uh, in the Persian Gulf region. This is after the U.S. seized at least one Iranian tanker and has been trying to sell the oil on it uh, under the the rubric of sanctions violations. So, uh, you know, there's been some back and forth in that regard. And the U.S. now has sent, has surged Sorry to, to use that term again, but has surged new forces into the Middle East, two U.S. naval vessels carrying about 3,000 personnel, soldiers and sailors, uh, entered the Red Sea from the Mediterranean through the Suez Canal earlier this week. Uh, the Pentagon has been uh, suggesting that, it, you know, it, it it's sending these forces uh, to deter the Iranians from threatening commercial shipping uh, in and around the Persian Gulf. Uh, the Iranians have snapped back that the U.S. Ne- has never created stability or security in the Middle East, which I think is unfair, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Actually, I've lost my train of thought. Anyway, uh, the the big plan here that's been talked about but apparently hasn't been approved yet within the Biden administration is to deploy U.S. military personnel aboard commercial ships that are sailing particularly through the Strait of Hormuz, which is the, the choke point between the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman. This would be a horrific idea. 
it, it might deter the Iranians from, you know, any shenanigans with regards to those vessels. On the other hand, it might also be the trigger for a war. So this is, seems like a very uh, reckless idea. I think idea. it's worth it. <laughs> now, all of this is prelude to what just happened on Thursday and really uh, just, you know, right before... Uh, we recorded this, so I won't have all the details on it. But Iran has released four U.S. prisoners from its notorious Evin prison, uh, and they've been placed under house arrest inside Iran. There is a fifth U.S. national uh, that's being held by the who's being held by the Iranians who was already under house arrest. This is apparently the prelude to their full release, to them being allowed to leave Iran and come back to the U.S. This is the product of months, I would say, of negotiations, probably mostly indirect, but who knows, between Iran and the U.S. around this prisoner issue. Details, as I say, are are still somewhat sparse at this point, and certainly the Biden administration does not want to give the appearance of a quid pro quo, but what seems to be coming the other way, at least one of the things, uh, is that the administration is going to release about $6 billion worth of Iranian assets uh, that are frozen in South Korea because of U.S. sanctions. It's going to exempt those funds basically from U.S. sanctions uh, and allow the Iranians to use them. Now, what has traditionally happened in these sorts of agreements is that the U.S., lifts the sanctions, but it's not, it doesn't completely lift them in a blanket way so that the Iranians can use that money to do anything they want without triggering sanctions. It it lifts them for specific purposes. So the U.S. has in the past allowed the Iranians access to frozen funds to, for example, pay their UN dues and for humanitarian purchases, which are supposedly, again, uh, legal under the, uh, the sanctions regime. That's probably what will happen here. Again, I don't have details, but it would probably be uh, there would probably be some requirement that this uh, this money be used to buy things like food, medicine, other kind of basic humanitarian necessities. Um, There's still a lot, I think, that that is not known about this deal and may never be known. We don't know, for example, whether there are any. Iranians being held in U.S. custody that might be released as part of this. Obviously, we will uh, find that out eventually if there are. Uh, there may also be some uh, some aspect of this or some you know yet to be revealed uh, agreement around the Iranian nuclear program. And I say that because the U.S. has been offering to release this money as a as a carrot or a potential carrot, both for a prisoner release and for the Iranians to make some uh, concessions, put some limits on their nuclear activity. So that may be another shoe uh, that has yet to drop. Um, and, uh, you know, again, then there may be some some sort of implicit understanding about this uh, this shipping issue, about the Iranians interfering with commercial shipping. That, if there is one, we probably will never know that that's a part of it, but who, you know, at this point, uh, it's, it's hard to say. And there's more going on in Iran. Let's talk about the Saudi embassy. Yes. Uh, so at the same time, the Saudis are, you know, playing footsie with this idea of, uh, normalizing relations with Israel and creating an anti-Iran bloc. They have continued the process of diplomatic normalization with Iran. They reopened their embassy in Tehran, uh, reportedly on Sunday, so that is back up and running. Saudi diplomats had already been working in Tehran prior to this, but apparently the uh, the Saudi embassy, which was closed in 2016, 
uh, after uh, having been attacked by a by a mob. The Saudis pulled out at that point. Um, the, uh, the the building was in such a state of disrepair and sort of uh, decrepitude that it took a while to get it back up into back back into working order. But it, it appears that they are back uh, in that facility now. Thank you, Derek, for your Iran updates. Uh, let's talk about Azerbaijan and what's going on in Karabakh. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't have much here, but uh, a, the former chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Luis Moreno Ocampo, uh, issued a report on Wednesday warning of a potential genocide in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, the Azerbaijani government has been blockading what's known as the Lechim Corridor, uh, which links Karabakh to Armenia, uh, this has prevented, by all by all accounts except the Azerbaijani government, it has prevented food, medicine, other staples from getting into Karabakh, and is increasingly putting uh, a great amount of pressure, a great deal of pressure on the Armenians living there. So uh, again, I don't have a lot of detail to go into here, but but I think the fact that this report is out there may create some push to try and resolve the situation. The EU, the US, Russia have all sort of tried to play a mediating role between Armenia and Azerbaijan, but I don't think there's been any great urgency on any of their parts to press the Azerbaijanis to lift this blockade. And so, you know, this is this is sort of the hope is that a report like this would maybe shake something loose uh, and uh, generate some international pressure, but but we'll have to see. Thank you, Derek. Um, there's a lot going on in Pakistan, to say the least. Uh, I guess let's start with former PM Imran Khan's uh, arrest. Yes, Imran Khan has been arrested again. Uh, we covered his previous arrest earlier this year. He was picked up on Saturday after having been convicted of corruption on corruption charges, essentially of uh, receiving state gifts as PM and uh, illegally reselling them. Uh, rather than turning them over to to the state coffers. He's been sentenced to three years in prison. Pakistan's election commission on Tuesday barred him from holding political office for the next five years. Now, Khan is uh, appealing his sentence, his uh, conviction and his sentence. Uh, if that is overturned, then the election commission's ban should also be overturned as well. But that has to play out. In the uh, through the legal process, there have been protests, as there were last time Khan was arrested. Uh, his supporters have protested. Unlike the last round of protests, I have not seen any reports of major or widespread violence with respect to these protests. Maybe Pakistani security forces learned their lesson from the last time and are, are, are taking a bit more of a moderate approach to these things, but I don't know. This all comes in the backdrop of Pakistan holding another election uh, in which Khan's uh, Pakistan Tehrike and Saf party is favored or would be favored to win uh, under normal circumstances, at least polling indicates that they are uh, vastly more popular than the alternatives, including the parties that make up the current Pakistani government. Khan says this is nothing more than political foul play aimed at keeping his political party off the ballot. What is behind all this? The PDM and the establishment, they are petrified of elections. Pakistani President Arif Alvi dissolved parliament on Wednesday, which was three days before its term was supposed to have ended anyway. Uh, he did this at the recommendation of Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif. Dissolving parliament early creates a 90-day window to hold a new election, whereas letting the parliament 
term expire naturally uh, leaves, I, I believe, only 60 days. Uh, so this gives the government another month to play around with and hopefully try to reverse its dismal poll numbers and eke out a victory. They're talking about, the government has also been talking about a way to extend that even further. They are uh, insisting that the next election must be held under the uh, conditions set up by Pakistan's most recent census. Now, that involves not just, you know, kind of finalizing the count and figuring out how many people there are. It involves a complicated redistricting process that could take months. It could add months on to this situation. So where Pakistan's probably at this point on on course to have an election, hold its, the election in November. Uh, we could be talking about months uh, longer than that, well into next year, uh, before they could conceivably do it if they insist on doing it under the the new census. One interesting thing that emerged this week. Uh, Let's talk about the, the greatest country on earth, Derek. Yeah. So here's how the U.S. is uh, surprisingly involved here. Who would uh, have guessed? Back in uh, back last year, back in March, when it was clear the Pakistani government or the Pakistani parliament was preparing to oust Imran Khan in a no confidence vote, which did take place take place last April, Khan began insisting that there was some there was a plot afoot, uh, basically uh, at the behest of the U.S. government, uh, that the U.S. was in contact with the Pakistani military, which of course uh, maintains a veto, let's say at at least over Pakistani civilian politics and and that the U.S. government was insisting that uh, Khan needed to go or else it was going to do long-term damage to the Pakistan-U.S. relationship. Uh, the U.S. government repeatedly has and continues to repeatedly insist that it played no role in Khan's ouster, but Khan referred to a letter in which he claimed that a U.S. official told the Pakistani ambassador to the U.S. that uh, if the uh, no-confidence vote against Khan would, would succeed, then all would be sort of forgiven in the U.S.-Pakistani relationship. But otherwise, uh, it was going to be a, uh, there was going to be a real problem for Pakistan. Well, it turns out, lo and behold, that document does exist. Uh, the Intercept has gotten a copy of it. Uh, they reported Ryan Grimm and Murtaza Hussein reported on it this week. Uh, it is it comes courtesy of Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs, Donald Liu who did indeed, apparently this is a, a diplomatic cable from the Pakistani ambassador back to Islamabad, did indeed, according to this cable, tell the Pakistani ambassador that uh, if you guys get rid of Khan, then we can, uh, you know, maybe everything will be fine, but otherwise uh, we're going to have a problem. And so uh, while this doesn't prove that the U.S. orchestrated anything, and in fact Khan had uh, already fallen out with the Pakistani military prior to this, so maybe his ouster was already in the cards, but this is uh, really uh, one hell of a correlation, if not a causal factor in his dismissal. I am just shocked, shocked that we were involved. Let's give an update, Derek, on Niger. Yes, uh, this is unfortunately, um, you know, I'm, we're giving this update. It may be, uh, by the time people listen to this, even as soon as tomorrow, it may be uh, kind of overtaken by events. The economic community of West African states uh, either is still or uh, has held its emergency meeting that was scheduled for Thursday to discuss what to do about the coup in Niger 
ECOWAS has threatened repeatedly to intervene militarily to restore Niger's former civilian government. Uh, they concluded uh, on Friday in a meeting of ECOWAS defense ministers, they apparently did kind of finalize a plan to invade Niger and do just that. Now, uh, ECOWAS had given the junta a deadline of Sunday to restore the civilian government and dissolve itself. The junta, uh, of course, did not do that. And the bloc didn't, hasn't done anything since. So uh, it's threatened, its deadline passed uh, without any indication of anything in the cards. And there's been some thinking that maybe uh, ECOWAS has blinked. It's been difficult to know if there really is internal cohesion within the bloc on a, on a potential invasion. That said, they did schedule uh, this, as I said, emergency summit on Thursday. And uh, the early report I've seen out of that is that they have decided to activate the ECOWAS standby force. That's the military, the uh, kind of joint military wing uh, of the, the bloc. So they're not invading yet, but they've taken a step toward that, maybe to just put more pressure on the junta or on, you know, who knows, maybe to actually go ahead and invade. As we've said before, uh, the uh, juntas in neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso have threatened to join Niger in a sort of uh, turn this this from a, an invasion of Niger into a regional war between the remaining ECOWAS members and those three countries. So this is the, this has the potential to escalate in a very uh, negative way. But uh, right now, it sounds like uh, they have taken a, a bit of a step toward invasion, but have not decided to go ahead and invade. The junta, uh, for what it's worth, also uh, has been acting here. It formed a uh, new government, a civilian-ish government, uh, transitional government, that it unveiled uh, on Thursday, undoubtedly to coincide with this ECOWAS summit. Uh, supposedly, according to uh, the AP, Members of the junta have told officials in Western governments that they will kill the former president, Mohamed Bazoum, uh, former Nigerian president, Mohamed Bazoum, if the, the invasion goes forward. That'll be the first move they take. I don't think you had to be uh, a mind reader to see that coming. But nevertheless, I guess the threat is now explicitly on the table. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about the conflict in Ethiopia. Yes, there's been a, an escalating conflict between the Ethiopian government and the Fano militia, which is uh, an Amhara militia that's been going on for a few weeks now. The, the Fano participated in the Ethiopian government's war against the Tigray People's Liberation Front uh, and have been dissatisfied uh, in, in some respects with the government's settlement of its conflict with the TPLF. They are also... Uh, angered at uh, the government's decision to order all regional kind of paramilitary or regional security forces to come under a federal central umbrella. Uh, they've been resisting that. And this has turned violent. Uh, at uh, As of, uh, I believe, Monday, yeah, the, the, it was Monday, there were reports of Fano militia occupying a number of towns and cities, uh, or at least parts of them, uh, in the Amhara region. This included the regional capital, Bahirdar. It also included Gondar, which is the second largest city in Amhara and a major tourist hub. 
So uh, this has been threatening to, you know, looking like it, it could turn into a, a much bigger conflict, something on par with the, uh, the Tigray War. And many areas are still dangerous for civilians. Uh, we don't know uh, uh, the number of casualties. Uh, the only thing we know is that a local hospital uh, registered a dozen uh, of injuries. That said, uh, the Ethiopian government now uh, claimed on Wednesday that its forces had driven the Fano out of at least six towns and cities in Amhara, including Bahirdar, including Gondar. Lalibela was another one. That's another major tourist uh, attraction or pilgrimage site, really. It's a, a religious site. So it seems like maybe the, the Fano resistance has broken to some extent. I don't know how, uh, how decisive this is, uh, but it seems like things have turned in a, in a new direction just in the last day or two. Uh, thanks, Derek. Uh, some um, wild news out of Ecuador. What's happening with this assassination? Yes. Uh, a, one of the candidates in Ecuador's presidential election, the first round of which is to take place on August 20th, uh, Fernando Villavicencio uh, was assassinated after a campaign rally uh, in Quito on Wednesday. Uh, now, Villavicencio was not the front runner, but he was one of... Uh, I would say four or five candidates with a reasonable shot of getting into the second round runoff uh, that is likely, according to polling at least, that is likely going to take place. Uh, it, 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 details of this are, are, you know, really still just emerging. Uh, this happened late Wednesday, so uh, you know the uh, Ecuadorian authorities are uh, say they're pursuing the uh, the killers. Uh, there were reports of a number of other people wounded in the attack, but I believe uh, Via Vicencio is the only fatality um, as to who did it, why they did it. Um, I, Via Vicencio has been sort of an activist. He's alleged corruption in the government. He's alleged links between officials in the government and organized crime, drug traffickers, etc. Uh, so, and, and Ecuador has had for some time now an, an increasing problem with uh i I think drug related violence trafficking related violence uh so uh, my first suspicion would be that it was uh that his killer was affiliated with uh you know that field of business in some to some degree but uh, again this is really just developing uh, as we uh, we were recording so uh, i don't have a lot more to offer Thanks, Derek. Uh, And let's end with a new Cold War update on uh, U.S. export controls. Yes, uh, the Biden administration, well, Joe Biden himself actually signed an executive order on Wednesday that that, that imposes new limits uh, on uh, the export of high-tech products to China and on U.S. investment in Chinese high-tech fields. Uh, As always, the administration insists that these controls are tightly focused on national security concerns that, that they are not trying to deal broad damage to the Chinese economy. Uh, there's really not a whole lot of reason to believe them when they say that. Uh, and I think especially at this point, the U.S. has imposed enough of these quote-unquote narrowly focused restrictions on doing business with China to create uh, the of infamous chilling effect that U.S. sanctions always have, uh, no matter how tightly focused the U.S. argue or U.S. officials argue they are, they always create a chilling effect that that winds up discouraging 
companies, individuals, whomever, from just generally doing business in the target country uh, for fear of inadvertently running running afoul of uh, some U.S. penalty or another. Uh, I think we're we're well beyond that point with respect to China. Uh, thanks, Derek. And let's conclude with what's going on with the Chinese economy. So, yeah, I mean, this is somewhat related, uh, but also has much larger implications. The economic news from China has been fairly dim, uh, fairly dismal uh, in recent days. Uh, new data from uh, Beijing's National Bureau of Statistics reveals that China actually experienced a little bit of deflation last month. Uh, you know, not the, the scourge of inflation, but the uh, real scourge of deflation. China's consumer price index declined, uh, according to these numbers, by 0.3% in July. That is the first time that's happened since the kind of middle of the COVID crisis when everybody was experiencing uh, economic struggles. Uh, Chinese trade also declined last month, and that's had uh, effects for all of its trade partners. Russia in particular, I know we haven't done a, a Ukraine update, there's really not much to say, but the Russian Russian trade with with China suffered as well, and China's really been uh, a lifeline for the Russian economy since that war started. The bigger implication, obviously, is this is the second largest or um, largest, depending on your uh, what statistic you're looking at, economy in the world. Uh, so if it is in decline, then the rest of the global economy is likely to follow. There are, as I say, other knock-on effects, oil prices, which have been edging up uh, because of Saudi and Russian production cuts, probably are are still experiencing some downward pressure uh, from a decline in Chinese demand. So, uh, you know, anybody who's uh, looking for bad economic news as we head into the uh, fall and uh, then holiday season, this is uh, probably not great from a, a global perspective. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, economic stuff is going to be particularly good in the next year or so. Um, so thank you, Derek. And I, I wanted to thank everyone, all the listeners, on behalf of Derek and myself. Um, there are some personal issues going on in the pod, and we, we got a lot of your um, reaching out. And, and uh, I, I know Derek appreciates it, and, and so do I. Thank so you. thank you very much, and we will see you all soon. Bye. Bye.